All right, we're back at the first great council in the history of Christianity. Last week we talked about the purpose of church councils. These councils are called when there is a major doctrinal issue, a controversy of some significant area of belief. And we said that church councils are called when there's two differing positions that are not compatible and the matter is essential. You know, for less important things, people just can agree to disagree about stuff. But when it's an essential matter, it's got to be sorted out and, a, and a, the truth has to be affirmed. So um, this is one of those situations here. The Jerusalem Council is being convened over the doctrine of salvation. And uh, that's something you can't get wrong. You certainly don't want to. So this particular problem arose because some Pharisees in the Jerusalem church had a horribly wrong view of salvation of their own salvation first obviously but it became an issue because they felt powerfully motivated to impose their view on Gentile converts and their view is stated right there in the first verse of chapter 15 let's kind of review that a little bit verse 1 it says some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved so circumcision salvation now God did give circumcision as a sign of the covenant uh, the Jews were to do it God, but God never said it was a source of eternal life he never said that this made a man righteous in the eyes of God but many Jewish theologians did kind of give it that level of importance so these Christian Pharisees were bringing those ideas into the church and they said very plainly you cannot be saved without being circumcised. So the largely Gentile Antioch
and the culture thoroughly approved of it just like our culture does. Just a few examples here Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 Paul says among you there must not even be a hint of porneia sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 flee immorality every other sin that a man commits is outside the body but the immoral man sins against his own body or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you have been bought with a price therefore glorify God with your body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1 well I'll start in verse 2 2 through 8 you this is probably the clearest uh, most important passage on the subject of fornication in the Bible. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. See he's got Jesus authority to say this stuff right. For this is the will of God your sanctification that is that you abstain from porneia from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man but the God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. That's authority. So it has to be dealt with frequently in the Gentile church because it was such a prevalent and accepted sin in the culture. And sexual impulses obviously are very powerful and if you come to Christ out of that world, out of a world of habitual sexual sin, that has to be replaced with higher things and that's just a challenge for people that some people some people can come right out of it and other people just struggle with that they've got habits of being and lusting and it's just a hard thing to refrain from that so they've got to work on that particular sin area. So when the brother James says abstain from fornication he's not talking about something that's optional this isn't like a meat offered to idol situation which really is neither here nor there this is actually a sin so um, it's always a sin and without exception a sin. So and it's kind of a form of idolatry Paul even calls it that in Colossians that sensual lusts are kind of an idolatry because you're putting the flesh before God it becomes your object of worship. Okay so that's the second thing. The third thing is particularly offensive to Jewish believers uh, would be the way that Gentiles often did not drain the blood of animals when they killed them to eat. So let me take you way back to the Old Testament in Leviticus uh, chapter 17 there's a very detailed revelation given through Moses on this particular issue and it's deeper than just don't do this it's uh, there's reasons attached to it. So this is Leviticus 17 verse 10 and any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them that would be Gentiles who eats any blood I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. It's pretty strict. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is by the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. 
Therefore I said to the sons of Israel no person among you may eat blood nor may any alien who, so who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten he shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For as the life of all flesh its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel you are not to eat the blood of any flesh for the life of all flesh the life of all flesh is in the blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So that's pretty specific and detailed and there's reasons given for that. So this is more than just restraining from certain foods. It's more than just um, like don't eat pigs or don't eat shellfish or something like that. This is there's a, a, a theological basis for what is called exsanguination. That's draining the blood out of an animal cutting its throat or cutting its main arteries and draining the blood out of it which is what we do today. That's normal in our time. Everybody does that but apparently there was a reason that some pagans really like their meat fully engorged with blood and if an animal dies naturally or is strangled to prepare it to eat much of the blood stays in the veins and uh, the arteries and especially the capillaries the little tiny capillaries that kind of flow out from the, the veins and things. So strangulation can cause blood to actually kind of blood vessels to pop and deposits blood into the meat and the tissues surrounding it. So that kind of meat seemed to have had a flavor that people liked back then. Blood meat basically. Now this is not the same as raw. What we call raw has been drained as much as humanly possible. But in the Bible blood is really closely identified with life which is biologically true of course um, but again it seems like more is suggested here but if you think about the human body if you've ever kind of aware of it I mean blood goes everywhere that's why just any wound anywhere on your body is going to bleed in some level because these capillaries are everywhere. Remember years ago they had that really weird science exhibition down in one of the big museums in LA where they took dehydrated humans and uh, like had their interior body parts on display in different forms and people standing there without their skin in poses it was really weird but they had one incredible thing which was your lungs and just just the capillaries just the the blood vessels in your lungs and it was just like this wonderful branching off it was just th thousands of little things going off it was just amazing and you just see how thoroughly blood permeates everything in your body it that is life there's nothing where, where blood isn't is no life in your body that's that's the idea there it's just a key to everything so in the bible um, blood is closely identified with life which is like I said biologically true but when we speak of the blood of Christ we're talking about his life right it's not the blood that saves us it's the fact that the blood is his life he's giving for us and verse 11 is really clearly connecting blood to the atonement in sacrifices to pay the ransom for sin one modern rabbi so this is a Jewish perspective a modern Jewish perspective talking about this text he says according to this text the prohibition on eating blood stems from the unique function God has assigned to blood to be sacrificed to God as a ransom for Israelite lives. So blood then is very powerfully connected to this idea of cleansing and atonement because of its deep connection to life itself. So that aspect of the dietary law is more than just don't eat this creature. It's blood is special. It's um, got a special place. It's so deeply connected with life. Because any place in our body where blood doesn't go dies. 
So it has this special place. So it seems Leviticus, in Leviticus God wants us to think about blood in terms of life not food. And especially as life for which atonement has to be made right. So it's special and that's why the penalty Moses gives for eating blood is very severe. It's kind of shockingly severe. And it's to be applied not just to Jews but even to Gentiles who might be traveling through or living, living in Israel. So the law actually in this case applies the requirements of the law on Gentiles. And it doesn't do that for a lot of the other laws in the Old Testament. But it does for this one. So I could see where um, an argument would be made theologically that would say no one, no Christian should do this. And frankly the church pretty much adopted this down through the ages. That's why in western countries we do drain all the meat. Uh, we drain, we kill animals by um, slitting their throat or whatever to drain all the blood out of it. So um, I should also mention that this prohibition goes back before the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to Noah and the commandments that God gave after the flood. In fact it's the dominant commandment that God gave. He spends more time on this commandment than on other things right after the flood of Noah. There were certain things God said that you could do and things you couldn't do. So this is um, Genesis chapter 9 verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. So before the flood you didn't eat meat but after the flood because probably the scarcity of things you could. I have given everything to you as I have given the green plant. So you can eat meat now. It's not anything wrong with doing that. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. There it is. So that goes way back before Moses. That's not just law. Moses is just affirming something that God commanded long before. I certainly will require your lifeblood from every animal I will require it. And from every person, from every man and as, as his brother, I will require the life of a person. So in the same way that God requires life for life in terms of uh, us murdering somebody or killing human beings, which is part of that same legislation, he's saying he's going to require it if you drink the blood of an animal. If that's what you're doing, that, that's, that's serious. So this idea goes all the way back and the Jews regarded it as binding on everyone because of this. And, and like I said, Christians tended to honor this and that became in western culture the norm to drain the blood before you eat meat. But it wasn't that way in the first century in western countries. So in the apostles time um, feeling on this matter was very strong and that feeling is based on principles that like I said they seems like they extend beyond just imagery and symbol uh, that there's something deep going on there. So James says refrain from that please refrain from that as well Gentiles even if you like your blood burger don't don't do it. So Christian Jews um, and Christian Gentiles have to live together they have to worship together they have to get along together so these things are asked they they're asked not to do the Gentiles are asked not to do. Then in verse 22 Luke gives us a summary of how the great council ended. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren and they sent this letter by them. So they're going to send a letter to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and well Barsabbas his name was Judas but you know having a Judas the Judas as your name in the early church probably wasn't all that popular so he, they called him Barsabbas or he asked to be called that and Silas and these men were both prophets we will find out. 
So a decision is made by the apostles and the elders and here Luke includes the whole church to send them off with a letter to Antioch and they send two Jerusalem based prophets to go as well Barsabbas and Silas. It's just a good idea to send two highly regarded Judean men to make clear that the church in Jerusalem completely supports the gospel of grace and to be available to answer any questions and about the Jerusalem church position or the discussion that was had there and the letter that they're carrying. So the church speaks with one voice. That's really important and that's really the purpose of a council. So the church can speak with one voice. We aren't told that the the procedure or whatever the dynamic was in the meeting itself to secure the approval of the whole church beyond just the apostles and the elders but Luke makes it a point that the apostles and elders acted with the whole congregation in this decision. So this very Jewish congregation was big hearted and open to the Lord's leading with clear direction with regard to um, the Gentiles and God is going to give direction through Peter Paul and Barnabas and James that's what he's done so that's they they all agree now did the Pharisees that objected to this whole idea did they were they part of the whole church here or did they storm off Luke doesn't tell us they may have they may have come around and said okay you guys are right that's that is the right thing and your arguments are persuasive and we're going to follow you we do know that this heresy continued on for many years afterwards and we talked last week about how the it kind of dogged everywhere Paul went this Judaistic version of Christianity but we don't know what happened at the council with these particular Pharisees who are making the objections so let's just read the letter verse 23 the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls it seemed good to us having become of one mind to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled which are kind of the same thing there and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things you will do well. Farewell. Very simple. It's a simple straightforward letter. And this also set the tone for future church councils in church history that they'll produce a written statement for the churches to use and to keep. So this kind of sets that direction there. Let's finish the account in verse 30. So when they were sent away they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together they delivered the letter and when they had read it they rejoiced because of its encouragement and Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. So they're back off to Jerusalem those two. So just look at the unity of these two churches which are culturally very diverse. Um, You know Christians who love the Lord and love the word they come together they're the same everywhere. I've been in some pretty far flung places in the world. I mean really far flung. Most people haven't been to Siberia. I've been there twice. But um, Christians are the same. They're the same everywhere. 
Are there cultural differences? Oh yeah, big cultural differences. And that can lead to some kooky and sometimes an amusing misunderstandings about things. But it's the same love for Christ and the same love for the gospel and the same love for each other. That's what Christianity is everywhere. There's an immediate bond in Christ. But the lesson here is that that kind of unity and joy must be built on the truth of God's word. Truth is central. We have to keep the gospel pure. Unity does not come first. Truth always comes first. That's really the lesson here. Let's pray. Lord we thank you for these wise men who are faithful to the gospel. Faithful to what you did. What you revealed to them. But also careful to respect each other and work for peace. What an example we have of the unity in the truth but also understanding people and accommodating ourselves to their particular needs. So help us learn from these men. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Come to the end of a great chapter. What happens next week is kind of shocking. So don't miss it.